0: I was always on the stage performing badly, probably, but uh, realised that wasn't really my destiny. So I went to university and did a drama, theatre, and television degree. And at that point, although I'd only ever done theatre, I kind of had this um, desire to work in live television. For me, my one way to try and address it is to, um, I mean, I've always said if there was another one of me, I'd have someone going into schools every day to celebrate the wonderful work of our industry and tell young people that we exist. Um, unfortunately, I don't have enough time and I haven't made a clone of myself to do that yet, but that was my ambition. You know, it's all that pushing of technology and, um, you know, technical wizardry. Rock and roll really spearheads, and then, you know, eventually that sort of trickles down into the sort of corporate world and then down into theatre, you know. You think now theatre shows do use LED, they do have sets that are much more technical.
1: Welcome to the Theatre Life podcast. Today we're talking with Sarah Hemsley-Cole. Sarah trained at the Royal Welsh College of Music and Drama as a postgraduate stage management student. Throughout her career, she has remained true to her love of theater and event production work, which has given the company its solid and varied skill set. Over the last few years, Sarah has produced a number of significant large-scale cultural events, both in the UK and Europe. Sarah is a sort of after-theater production manager, most recently working with CBB's under-annual panto. Through a number of significant cultural events, Sarah has developed an understanding of the world of television and televised live events. Hello, Sarah. Welcome to the show.
0: Hey, thank you.
1: We're happy to have you here with us. It's um, so excited to talk to you. So, could you tell us a little bit of how did you start in the industry and what made you become an entertainment professional?
0: My goodness, that's a long time ago now. Um, So I'd always, from a young age, uh, you know, done drama, you know, been to clubs and uh, spent my teenage years hanging out at my local theatre, which always in those type of clubs is always about being on the stage. You know, uh, we still, I don't think, have that great um, uh, support network for young people to understand really what the backstage opportunities are. But anyway, I was always on the stage performing badly, probably, but, uh, realized that wasn't really my destiny. So I went to university and did a drama theater and television degree. And at that point, although I'd only ever done theater, I kind of had this, um, desire to work in live television. I don't know why. I just thought it might be something really exciting anyway. So I did my degree. I, I found that really interesting, but I still, at the end of it was like, how am I going to actually enter this profession? So it was recommended to me to go to a drama school, perhaps, and do stage management training just to have that sort of fundamental basics. And really that, you know, for me, that's where it all started. I went to the Welsh College, um, set off to the big city lights of Cardiff in the UK, went to the college, got a great grounding in stage management and technical theatre. I'd always been an organiser. I'd been through uh, what we have in the UK, the guiding system, Uh, you know, brownies, guides, rangers. I'd always been the chair of the ranger group. I'd always organized the social events. So I have a natural instinct to kind of organize things. So of course, stage management, once it was all revealed to me, what those component parts are obviously was a bit of a dream. So from there, I obviously did my training. I just did the one year and got going in the profession. And bizarrely, I was a venue technician completely by default for one of my first jobs. Uh, which took me um, around the sort of valleys of South Wales where I live. And then whilst I was working there um, at the venue uh, that we were based out of, uh, an opportunity came up to do an outdoor um, celebration. They wanted to stage an outdoor concert. This is way back in 1995. And they were looking for volunteers within the staffing team to work on this event, of course, as a naive 20 Three year old, I put my hand up and was like, Yes, I will do that. That will be great. And worked so hard on something I had no idea what I was doing at all. I kind of commended a friend who'd done some events to kind of give me a few pointers. I'm still really proud that we did that event for £32,000, which was quite a lot of money in those days, but obviously a, a dim and distant memory in terms of what we spend on outdoor events these days. So that was my first foray into outdoor events. And then time carried on. And the guy who'd helped me out with that particular show uh, wanted to leave a job he was doing, which was actually producing events for the council uh, here in Cardiff. And he said, you know, Sarah, I need to get out. They, they We're coming into the season and I've left them a bit stranded now because I'm going to leave. So could I put your name forward as someone who organizes events? And I was a little bit taken aback because I was a bit like, I've only ever actually organized one outdoor event and you helped me. He was like, it's fine. They don't need to know that. It'll be fine. So I was like, (laughs) okay. So with that, went to meet this man who became my boss. Um, He took me on and I then had three years uh, running up to the millennium, actually uh, running up to that big moment in outdoor events uh, to learn my craft. Really, it's, you know, working for um, an organization, an institution meant there was quite a lot of training available. So I had some really good, training opportunities to learn more while I was there and and then once I left that job I was a little bit naive maybe I thought that the world of outdoor events might come crashing down after the millennium uh so I thought right I'm going to jump ship and uh, I went to work in the theater in Cardiff in the Sherman Theater as the production manager and I did I had a great time there I did 3 years there uh but then I was spending my my time off on my holiday time working on some outdoor events for a, a concert promoter who did some stuff in the city. And after a couple of years of working with him in just on a few shows, he sat me down and was like, Sarah, what are you doing? And at that point I was earning more working for him on two outdoor shows. And I was all year working at the theater, which is probably a huge statement about how poorly we're paid in the theater in this country. But uh, anyway, I was like, mm, yeah. And he said, look, come on, I'll make it worth your while to jump ship. And I was like, okay. So with that, I entered the world of events full-time as a a sole trader. And then in 2006, I set up SC Productions just because we were becoming much busier. I needed to take on more staff. Uh, The financial thresholds made it more attractive to run a company. Um, And I've not really looked back. And now I have a really privileged position where uh, I've combined my event work with some major site-specific outdoor work with uh, still going to my love of theatre. I get to work on some amazing um, international music events. Um, we do everything in, in terms of events. We prioritise really working in the summer. So we do everything from sort of open field, a greenfield site, to maybe working in a castle, to working in um, stadium shows. Uh, you know, we've worked with um, Ed Sheeran, the Stereophonics, uh, and this year we're delivering um, some of the Taylor Swift Shows that are coming into the UK. We're looking after Cardiff Stadium and the two slots at Wembley Stadium. So, you know, we're very lucky uh, that we've managed to navigate through the different channels and different, you know, uh, promoters and, and have landed with some great, some great contra- uh, contracts, you know, from our clients uh, to deliver.
1: That sounds like a very fascinating story, paired with, um, I guess, a sparkle of luck throughout and a lot of
0: hard work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, um, well, funny enough, I, my wife still nags me now, but I mean, I didn't have a relationship really until I was 40. You know, I was one of those people that was absolutely every hour of every day was working or supporting in my younger years. Um, you know, for about six or seven years, I worked as a volunteer on the, the Mardi Gras in Cardiff, which was a lesbian and gay, uh, Mardi Gras, which I, joined the team in 2000 when I was at the council. A few people have come to the council to ask if they could support the the Mardi Gras, which was a fledgling kind of event at that point. Uh, And my name got put forward as uh, both a lesbian and someone who worked in events. Uh, So I got uh, connected with that team. And for six years, you know, help them run that event. We raised all the money to do it. So as well as working full-time on theater and events, I was then actually volunteering on an organize- for an organization as well, delivering an event. So I'm a bit of a workaholic, I'm afraid, but hard work pays off, you know, <laughs> uh, You know, and I think, you know, all my my friends' network, you know, my whole world is centered around, you know, my work, the, the industry I'm part of. When we had COVID a few years ago, extremely challenging times. And, uh, I got put forward, uh, to be the representative for Wales as our sort of, um, uh, representing Wales on the sort of more national bodies in the UK. We, um, although we're seen as one country we're sort of four countries put together. Um, and, uh, so we came together as a sort of national team in Wales, and then a national team in terms of the UK. And I led a lot of that, um, uh, fronting up a lot of that campaign you know you suddenly get thrust in front of a camera and have to do um interviews etc uh with the media and i suppose you know even back when i did the mardi gras although i've always considered myself a backstage person you know i don't particularly crave the limelight um you know someone's got to stand in front of that camera and talk to the media and put your cause forward and i guess i've always had a kind of passion uh for what I believe is right and also supporting our industry and, you know, coming out of COVID, you know, I think in Wales, we were really united. We, we gathered everyone up. We, we looked after each other during that period of time and, you know, tried to bring people together in sort of outdoor, not protests as such, but sort of campaign, front campaign work. And again, I think, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of uh, of the community I'm part of.
1: That's fascinating. I think uh, you've mentioned uh, a few, a number of things that are that I could circle back to, um, but um, it feels like you were somehow going, or like everything in your life, like you have worked outdoors through a long time. You had always been engaged somehow in the political organizing things set up so that you could lead all the situation during COVID, which was really hard too. And I think. You guys were lucky to be able to have you and put you on that position that you could speak for the the, the entertainment community with such background saying, Okay, this is what we're struggling with, these are options we can put forward and how could we move forward? That's that's nice. That's fascinating. Yeah, I mean
0: it was you know, in the in the UK we you know, our sector uh, the event sector particularly, not so much the theatre, but um, the event sector is is still a relatively new industry. I mean, I think that I've sort of been part of particularly the outdoor event world, despite my doubts that it would continue beyond the year 2000. Uh, I've seen that market, that whole sector grow over the last 25 years into a phenomenal business. But the thing we didn't have, which was really interesting during COVID, we didn't have any data. Because we just do it, so we just get on with it, and there's the off uh, the odd economical um, uh, package, you know, after an event's been somewhere, they say, "Oh, it brought you know x amount of millions into that community or into that town." But we don't really have any data in terms of how many people work in the event sector, really what that um, encounters, you know, is it everything from a birthday party, a wedding to a major music concert? You know what events is such a broad term? Uh, that's used particularly here in the uk and i guess probably elsewhere but you know we just didn't have enough data so actually as an industry we were really on the back foot you know manufacturing could say oh well we're losing x amount of millions we've sold x amount of less cars than we would normally whereas we were a bit like uh hmm, well we're not quite sure really so it was a really interesting time and actually a bit of a wake-up call i think in terms of what we needed and you know in wales we are much closer to our government administration just because there's less uh less bureaucracy i suppose to get towards those people you you can see them walking down the street you know so so in some ways in wales we had a slightly better kind of connection to our government but our government was also very particular about you know keeping everyone apart and not um resetting anything that would speed up the you know the the, the virus uh being passed on so so it was challenging because although we wanted just to say we want to get back to work Obviously, that was the one thing they weren't going to let us do, Um, and we didn't really have enough data in terms of how many of us existed. And but you know, we worked with the Welsh government. We tried to support their initiatives. They did have some funding come available to individuals and businesses um, in that period. So, but you know, I think if you don't fight for what you believe in, then someone's going to take it away from you. We live in a pretty dog eat dog world, and I think. COVID was a bit of a reality check in terms of how expendable some things are, how fragile some infrastructure is. Do you know what I mean? I think we learned an awful lot from that experience, hideous and horrible as it was. um, You know, I think it was a bit of a wake-up call as well.
1: And now a note from our sponsor. The Theatre Art Live podcast is proud to be sponsored by Clearcom. Clearcom is the leader in voice communications for theatre and the performing arts. Call your cues with the simplicity and elegance of Clearcom Intercom Solutions. You can find them at C-L-E-A-R-C-O-M dot com. Go check them out. For sure. And uh, you were mentioning something that uh, very important I feel that the fact that we don't really collect any data or we don't have a lot, I think that's an industry-wide, we lack a lot of, I don't know, archiving information, processing all the information and maybe having a place where we collect information, whether it's uh, citywide, nationwide, worldwide. There's a lot lot that's done and then forgotten Mm -hmm. or not kept on some sort of, you know, to well, have a friend that makes fun of me because he says that I'm analytical. Okay. <laughs> but where, where can we do an analysis or learn from if we are not going back into what we've done, good, badly, poorly learned? And it ties to something you said at the very, very beginning that um, you didn't know, like you, you mostly started on stage and you didn't know all the possibilities that were backstage. And I think it's true for I know it's true for Anna Robe. I know it's somewhat true for myself didn't really like to be on stage, but you know like I didn't know what I could do backstage. Mm. I didn't know what the possibilities are and if if I take the three of us as example for, um I can tell you that I'm in the Americas, you're in Europe, she's in Australia, so it seems to be like a common trend so i I wonder if those two two are tied somehow that I don't know if it's <clears throat> because we, could, we wanted as industry to preserve the magic of theater or the wow factor and that made it so that nobody knows who we are, what we do and, and it has all these repercussions. It's harder to train people, it's harder to get government funding, it's harder to keep a record and a track of what's been done, learn from our own mistakes.
0: I mean, I think, I think in terms of, you know, those younger kind of drama clubs and youth groups, I think it's much more attractive and much more of a sell, you know, t- to put a child on the stage than to say, Oh, h- would you like to come and, uh, call the, call the script or work on the lighting? Do you know what I mean? I think, you know, because the people running those classes tend to be sort of performers, et, et cetera, themselves. Um. The, the the set those classes up so I think um there's a problem there I think for me my one way to try and address it is to um I mean I've always said if there was another one of me I'd have someone going into schools every day to celebrate the wonderful work of our industry and tell young people that we exist um unfortunately I don't have enough time and I haven't made a clone of myself to do that yet but that was my ambition because I also think And it's probably true of educational systems around the world, but particularly in secondary schools in this country, they're now so focused on exam results and and university placements that there's a whole tranche of young people that are being disregarded really, because academia is not their preference, but they're not really offered an alternative. And, And also, with due respect to most teachers, they probably don't know anything about our world either, why would they they've probably maybe been to the theater but they only see the thing at the front they don't see what's behind so i think there's just a lack of knowledge from the people who are sort of these careers focused people telling people i think a lot of people in our industry are super busy so they don't really have time to give back or go and go to trade stands and you know still as an uh, you know as an industry like i say we're a young industry and we don't have these big overarching unions or organizations like you know the business community of the various business organizations that basically are employed to collect that data i think the problem with our industry is we just don't have that overarching body that the government have put in place to actually collate all that stuff and obviously a commercial producer or a commercial um you know music promoter or whatever they sort of in their own solitary world of making, of surviving for themselves. They're not necessarily sharing that data and any small organizations that we have where different people come together, again, it's another level of work on top of what they're already doing. And it's just a capacity issue. I think in reality, when you boil down the nuts and bolts of it, Um, whereas, you know, if you look at other sectors, the government, they have these kind of people in place that, that actually do that work and collect that information. And maybe that's the same thing our sector should possibly champion a bit more is getting someone in a more senior level who can be a part of a department that's actually gathering up all of the information about our sector. But again, I think our sector is, no one's ever really defined. And I think that came out in the COVID stuff as well. No one's really defined what our sector is. Is it a birthday party? Is it a wedding? Is it a music concert? Is it, does theater come into that umbrella as well? You know site specific work I mean it's it's vast it's it's vaster probably than any other sector do you mean there's so many bits you know we used to get into these site wrangles and a calls that we were on um in Wales because we were sort of lumped in with the hospitality sector and they're all about bedrooms and hotel facilities and and you know restaurants and it's like what's mm, slightly different to what we do do you know what I mean and it, And then it's like, well, let's not argue amongst ourselves because ultimately we all need to come together to push forward. So, you know, I think as a sector, sometimes we can get a little bit, we get a little bit precious about what we do, but really we, we need to kind of find some common ground, like you were saying. And interestingly, like you say, it's a kind of worldwide thing, but I I think it's because, I mean, I know theatre has been around for centuries, but the world of events particularly is still very, very in its infancy you know, it's 20, 30 years old. I mean, when were the first rock and roll concerts really of note in the 70s? And there was a handful of them, do you know what I mean? And then it became a bit more venue based in the 80s. And then sort of that mid 90s, there was a bit more of an explosion of doing concerts, you know, up until, I don't know, probably the mid 90s, you know, the, you know, Queen doing a big show at Wembley, or I don't know, Bruce Springsteen doing a big, they were really one-offs whereas you know next summer in cardiff we've got a bruce springsteen playing we've got pink playing we've got taylor swift playing we've got the foo fighters playing you know there's like five or six concerts you know of multiple dates happening in one city in in one month you know a couple of months you know that the whole industry has just changed and, and gone into a dis- different strategy really
1: yeah how do you see your younger self that said there was not going to be too many events uh, anymore, and that today working and like the Taylor Swift concert that's moving economies literally.
0: Yeah, I think I was yeah like I said I was a little naive there at the uh, turn of the <laughs> millennium, but you know if, we kept being told the world was going to end, so like I was just like oh I'm, I'm <laughs> gonna blow itself out a bit, but oh my god what an idiot. But anyway, I was really I I loved my time at the Sherman and I loved my time um, uh, going back into the theatre uh and you know that set me on a good stead and like I say I'm I'm really lucky now that I get to do both theater I always say that I love the excess of rock and roll and the detail of theater you know because you can work on a theater show and every penny counts and you're you know buying something that you're going to then create it into something else and it's all you know very magical and like you say you've got that illusion stuff and then rock and roll is just like well, particularly when you're working with those higher end artists which are world players, money has a very different meaning in that scale of work, you know.
1: Would you say those are like the two poles of of the industry somehow? Or I think is, are so. there, I uh,
0: For me, that's always been, you know, that's always been my kind of take on it all because You know, there's nothing more when I'm making a theatre show, when you look at the model box that the designers made, and then I know my gig is to make that a thing on stage, you know, all the little detail that they put in model boxes, which if I put my hands anywhere near it, I know I'm going to break it because it's so fragile. And then (laughs) then, you're just like, oh, don't touch it. Uh, But to know that that's my job is to make that thing appear on the stage. I love that. And, you know, that's all about the detail. Whereas, you know, like when we do the Taylor Swift show in in Cardiff and when we've worked on the Ed shows, it's about scale. It's about, you know, 60, 70, 90,000 people enjoying, you know, particularly with Ed, that one individual. You know, he's a one guy on stage and he's got to carry it. and. How does one person speak to ninety thousand people? And it's the the magic of the kind of you know the creation of the visuals, you know, and the the screens and and that amazing audio that makes that experience unique for that person who's one of those ninety thousand. Whereas in the theatre, you know, it's it's all that detail, that intimacy, that it's just a really different experience. And for me, that is the that in my world and what I do, that's my two poles. Yes.
1: um yes when uh, i think u uh, two which was the highest grossing tour before it was that was before taylor swift was <laughs> is now yeah. i think what they both had in common was this like they were both really trying to get to their audiences and find this intimate within the the scale yeah. Um. At least my gig moments. That's uh, what. That's what I've learned from both. of them.
0: Yeah. Well, and that was interesting because in the the edge shows we did the the previous world tour, which was sort of 2018 19, he had an end on stage. The stadiums were always done at the end, and you know, playing out. And then on the tour we did in 22, which is still going around the world now, it was in the UK in 22. He was in the center, and his his uh, desire for that from his creative team and from him and talking to the guys, was that he felt being in the middle of the stadium meant he, nobody would feel that they were that far away from him. And he was right because he was like, you know, I'm one guy and I just, I want to feel it. I want to feel the audience. You know, they're the reason I am the one guy I am, you know. And interestingly on the Taylor stage, you know, her on the Eros tour, obviously she's got that massive walkway that comes out, you know, almost three quarters of the way down the pitch. Uh, I mean, it's a huge amount of staging. Um, and again, the video screens and all of that, but, you know, again, that brings her right out into that audience, which people are going to be wild about, you know what I mean? Because it's an extraordinary thing to be part of. So I think I'm not saying there isn't an intimacy in rock and roll, but it's a very different intimacy to what you would create in the theater.
1: Yeah, for sure. For sure. Having one of those LED screens or having... Whatever, like thing that brings the artist closer, but it makes it bigger
0: somehow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's uh, always that thing—is it? it's that cascade? Because obviously, you know, rock and roll has the money. Rock and roll can push those boundaries. I mean, you know, on Ed's tour, there's the 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 screens that hang off the side. Uh, sort of stilt pieces are all shapes of plectrums. You know, they all fold up into this amazing kind of package that they then just get put on the trucking. You know, it's one piece that just folds in on itself you know, it's all that pushing of technology and, um, you know, technical wizardry. Rock and roll really spearheads. And then, you know, eventually that sort of trickles down into the sort of corporate world and then down into theatre. You know, you think now theatre shows do use LED, they do have sets that are much more technical in lots of ways. Do you know what I mean? And it, it all filters down from, you know, the big guy spending the money on developing it all. And then it sort of trickling down through the systems till it's commercially viable for us to use in a theater do you know what I mean but but like you say there's still a fair bit in theater that's sticky based and magic you know
1: yeah rock and roll is still magic like but okay <laughs> theater at life is a global media site for entertainment memberships start at only 38 us dollars per year